0: So for as long as I can remember, I've been someone who has a knack for having favorite things. I have a favorite food, steak, I have a favorite color, green, and I have a favorite superhero. So how many of you have a favorite superhero here? Anyone? Okay, there's some, there's a lot of kids here, so I'm hoping some people are his fans. Well, my favorite superhero is Batman, and it's not even, it's not even close, I love Batman. I love Batman so much that when I got married, I had cufflinks that were Batman cufflinks, and my wife, knowing that I love Batman, had high heels that had like a Batman mosaic on them. I still have. She saw them. They're really cool. She made them. Um, and one of the reasons I love Batman, other than the fact that he doesn't have any superpowers and he still beats people with superpowers, and that he's the coolest looking superhero, is because Batman is a detective Batman comics are literally called detective comics so he solves problems that no one else can solve with his super brain and he solves mysteries and he puts puzzle pieces together and so today uh, we're gonna kinda be like Batman we're gonna try to use some detective work and we're gonna solve a problem that needs to be solved we all know the problem there is an inherent flaw in our deepest selves. We are sinful. This morning, we're going to open up God's Word. We're going to dig into it, into the jots and squiggles, and we're going to seek out the answer to understand the problem of sin. So, in order to do this, we're going to ask four questions. I know it sounds like a lot, but they're pretty simple. One Who were you before Christ? And what is the significance of who you were before Christ? Who are you in Christ? And what is the significance of who you are in Christ? Again, who were you before Christ? And what's the significance of who you were? Then later in the sermon, who are you? And what is the significance of who you are? So in order to answer these four questions, we're going to see three things. We're going to see our position with and without Christ, our condition with and without Christ, and the actions that result. So if you want to take notes or write them down, Position, condition, and action. So 2024 begins tomorrow, and many of us have New Year's resolutions. I know I do. However, before we shoot for those goals, let's first have an understanding of who we are. But before we can get into this passage, we have to understand the context of the passage at hand. This passage directly follows this amazing declaration from the Apostle Paul of the nature of Jesus Christ himself. You see, we can't start knowing who we are until we know who Christ is. The preceding passage says that through Christ all things were created in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. So Christ is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Christ is eternal and the upholder of the cosmos and everything therein. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So Jesus Christ is one with God. Paul is showing how Jesus Christ isn't just a special prophet of God or some great holy man. Jesus Christ is God himself. As Beck said a few weeks ago, the mystery of the second person of the Godhead is revealed through Jesus Christ. And remember what Rich said in his most recent sermon, Jesus is God himself who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that's what we've been celebrating all month. God himself was born in the flesh just like us. He came that we that he might be preeminent in all creation. And in order for Christ to be preeminent, he had to overcome all evil and darkness. And that's where we come in. So, how many of you know somebody that's just inherently good at everything they do? Right, I... You work at something for months and months and months and then someone comes along, they've never even tried it at all and they're already better than you at it, right? That's what my whole childhood was like. That's what my dad is like. He is just better than everyone at everything, it seems like, right? So when I was in eighth grade, I got super into hacky sack. And so for every recess for six months, I'd be out there hacky sacking, hacky sacking. And at my best, I had 17 hacks, which means I didn't let the hacky sack hit the ground. For 17 straight times. Really good, okay? So one day I go home and I'm in my front yard and I'm practicing my hacky sack and my dad, being the good dad that he is, wants to have some rapport with his son. So he comes out and he says, hey, can I give that a shot? And I say, sure. And I throw in the hacky sack and I kid you not, his third try, he got 19 hacks. <laughs> never done it before. First try, 19 hacks. I never hacky sacked again. So, what are some things that you're naturally good at, right? Construction, building, chiropractic, science, pharmacy. There's a lot of different things, right? What about sin? When's the last time you had to work really hard at sinning? I can answer that question for you. Never. Sinning is easy for us. You can say it's like the natural disposition of our hearts. We don't have to work at sinning. It's just easy breezy, lemon squeezy, right? So to start answering the question of who were you before Christ, let's look at what the passage says in verse 21. And you who are once alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds. So first we see our position. You were alienated Alienated is the position that sin puts us in. So what does it mean to be alienated? It literally means to be shut out or separated from fellowship, to be estranged. Think of it like a chasm so large that you could never cross it. On one side, there's God, and on the other side, there's you and me. And between us, there's this massive chasm, this chasm of sin, When Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 eat the forbidden fruit, they were forced from the very presence of God and cast into the wilderness. They were alienated from God himself. And we, like our foreparents, are also alienated from God. We inherit the position of our foreparents. Not only do we inherit this position of alienation because of the sin that enters the world through Adam and Eve and their disobedience, we also see in Romans 8 that creation itself is subjected to this alienation as well. So not only are we in a fallen and alienated state, so too is creation. And this is a horrible place to be. So our position before Christ is that of alienation. Now let's get into our condition. Look at verse 21 again. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So now we can see our condition. We were hostile in mind. What does it mean to be hostile in mind? So go ahead, turn in your Bibles to Romans 8 to get a better understanding of what it means to be hostile in mind. Starting in verse 5. We have many clues to help us answer the first question of who were you before Christ by helping us understand our condition of being hostile in mind. First, those who live according to the flesh, which is the opposite of the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And as a result of setting our minds on the flesh is what? It's death. Death. So setting our minds on flesh is death because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So the hostile mind is one that will not and cannot submit to God's law. Anyone who does not submit to God's law cannot please God. So if our natural condition before Christ was one of insubordination and hostility, so much so that we cannot please God, understanding this, We can reasonably conclude that our condition, church, was bad. Not kind of bad, all bad. Now, Colt, wait, 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 wait. This this cannot be right. We can't say that people are inherently bad, right? And this is an excellent question. So let's answer it now. Beck in the sermon a few weeks ago kind of touched on this, and it's been kind of percolating around the church ever since so let's deal with it. What is the inherent nature of people? Are people inherently good or are people inherently bad? But before we can answer this question, we have to define our terms. What does it mean to be good and what does it mean to be bad? So we'll start with the first question. What does it mean to be good? Well, let's let the Bible speak for itself. This isn't my opinion. This is what the Bible says. In Mark 10 Starting at 17, it says, As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So who does Jesus say is good? God alone. God alone is good. So therefore, anything good must come from God. So back in Genesis 1, we see the story of creation. We see God making creation. And when God makes his creation, he looks out and he sees and he says, he saw and and he said it was good. Later in chapter 2, we see God gather some dust and he breathes into it and creates man. However, there is something that sets man apart from all of God's good creation. God creates man In his own image and likeness. Mankind is the pinnacle of creation. Not only is man good, man is like God himself. Mankind alone bears the image and the source of all goodness. So when mankind is created like his creator, he's good. If we stop here, we would have to say that mankind is inherently good because nothing bad comes from God. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end here. As Aaron says, we don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a Genesis 3 world. So right after the fall, we see this dichotomy clearly stated in Genesis 5 when it says, when God created man, he made him in his likeness and the image and likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. But here we see, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own image after his likeness and named him Seth. As Aslan says in the Chronicles of Narnia, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. So the dual nature of man is thus revealed. Every person is created in the image of God, the pinnacle of God's creation, the only beings created in the image of God himself. That should make you raise your heads high. However, we too descend from the image and likeness of our forefather, Adam. And we too inherit his sinful nature. So now the question is presented, can our good outdo our bad? Since all people are created in the image of God, most of us are good people, right? We're not Hitler or Stalin or some members of some terrorist organization. We're not serial killers or rapists. For most of us, our good will outweigh our bad. Are we really that bad? Church, that's the problem that every belief system attempts to solve. Whether someone is devout, a devout atheist or a devout Muslim or anything in between, they are trying to solve the problem of sin. How to get rid of the bad in the world. But it's all faulty. And most people are trying to do this by letting their good outweigh their bad. And those that are the outliers that don't do this in our society, they are. They're the outliers. So can we just work harder at being good and push the bad away? We live in a society that has made being nice the most important thing that you can do. We don't say certain things because they're not nice. We as a society have conflated being nice with being kind. The nice answer is to tell you that you are good and your good will outweigh your bad and God just wants you to be good. But that is not true, so let me be kind to you. The answer is no, our good does not outweigh our bad. Our alienation and hostility in mind cannot be overcome by our own efforts because we are corrupt to the core. And so too are our efforts. As Ephesians 2 says, we are far off strangers having no hope. So in order to illustrate this point, because it's not easy to understand, here's a bottle of water. This is good water, uncorrupted water. I could drink it. But in my pocket, I just have like a little bottle of poison. Just a little. Not a lot, 1%. So if I take this 1%, this trace amounts, Of poison, and I pour it into the bottle. What happens? Eventually, the entire thing is full of poison. Would you drink this water? Why? It's mostly good, it's mostly water. You see, a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. That's what the Bible says. So 99.9% good is what? Evil. There's no neutrality here. For those of us who have white hair to the little infant clinging to his mommy, we are all broken. We are all dead and our transgressions there is no neutrality. Our natures have been corrupted by sin, and the result of this is evil. Look here again, and you who are once alienated in of hostile mind doing evil deeds. Our position and our condition lead to action, and those actions are evil, because they come from a place of corruption. Good people don't do evil, evil people do evil. Jesus follows a statement about God only being good by quoting the second half of the Ten Commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, etc. All these commandments deal with loving your neighbor because the summation of the law is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So God, the source of all goodness, gave a good and perfect law that we are called to obey. And if we obey it, we will be good and we will love both God and our neighbor. So, if you want to be good, you have to be able to keep God's commands. But we just learned that we could not submit to God's law. Our old position of alienation and condition of hostility and mind made it an impossibility. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So we can't make ourselves good because the very means of goodness is seemingly unattainable. We are alienated from God, alone in our sin. We are hostile in mind, insubordinate to God's law. And we also, as a result of our condition, are evil and corrupt. And God, being a good and holy God, will not abide evil. Evil people deserve God's retribution. Evil people deserve God's wrath. Evil people deserve death. So let's stop here and ask the first of two questions. The two questions. Who were you before Christ? You were a wicked sinner, alienated from God, and you stood alone. You had a hostile mind that hated God and his law, and this hostility of mind led to evil deeds. And what is the significance of who you were? God in his holiness will not abide evil. As a result of your sin, you will collect your wages and the wages of sin is death. You will incur God's judgment and wrath for all eternity, separated from God and hell. You would be given over to your hostile mind and would be consumed with evil and alienated from God for all eternity. Hell is real, and that's where you were going. And for some of you here, this isn't who you were. This is who you are. And it's a terrifying place to be. And this is the reality of the world, and it's only a disservice to you and to everyone else to act as if though this isn't what God's Word says. We don't get to decide what is good and what is bad. We are not God. We are not held to our standard. We are held to His standard. We are called to examine ourselves. So look at yourself and be honest. Is this who you were, or is this who you are? I tell you this because I love you. I tell you this because we always need to be reminded of what we were before Christ. However, we are not stuck in verse 21. We get verse 22. Our God doesn't leave us in our sinful position and condition. And praise God for that. So let's look at verse 22. And he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This, friends, is the gospel, the good news. We are not left alienated, hostile minds, and doing evil deeds. And knowing this is no longer a reality. We can ask the questions, who am I in Christ? And what is the significance of who I am in Christ? So let's see our new position and condition And let's see what actions result. So remember though, we can't start knowing who we are before we know who Christ is. We should be reflections of Christ. If you look at the previous passage, we see that he is holy, perfect, and blameless. Jesus Christ, firstborn of all creation. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ, God himself, was born of flesh, that he might reconcile to himself all things through the blood of his cross, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is where our new position begins. We know that before Christ we had a position of alienation from God, but what do we see here in verse 22? He has now reconciled in his body of flesh. So now we can see that we have a new position in Christ. We are reconciled. What does it mean to be reconciled? Reconciliation is the end of estrangement caused by sin that came from our poor parents Adam and Eve between God and man. But what does it mean? Reconciliation here in verse 22. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. We are reconciled to God through the death of God himself. John Calvin describes reconciliation as the peace between humanity and God that results from the expiation of sin and the propitiation of God's wrath. So, the expiation of sin and the propitiation of God's wrath, these are just fancy Bible terms that are actually really simple. The prefix ex just means out of or from. So expiation has to do with removing something or taking something away. In biblical terms, it has to do with taking away guilt through the payment of a penalty or the offering of an atonement. And by contrast, propitiation has to do with the object of the expiation. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Sin and God cannot be reconciled unless the sin is first put to death. So in order for us to be reconciled, our sin had to be expiated, had to be taken away. So where did our sin go? It went on to Christ on the cross. And what happened to Christ on the cross when he bore the sins of his elect? He took the position and condition of sinners. He too was alienated from God, even though he perfectly obeyed God's law. He was punished for the hostility of mankind. The Prince of Peace, who never once perpetrated evil, the Son of God Himself, took on flesh like us and was crushed under God's wrath for our evil deeds, thus paying our ransom, making an atonement for our sin, and propitiating God's wrath. God took His own wrath for you and for me. And this is how redemption was accomplished and applied. But the story doesn't end at the cross by no means. Three days later, Christ is raised from the dead. In verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That And at that moment, sin and death were defeated. Our position is no longer found in our wicked state, but is rather found in Jesus Christ himself. We are now reconciled to God. Reconciled is our new position We can now dwell with God himself through Christ's death on the cross and his triumphant resurrection. Jesus Christ bridged the chasm of sin that we could not, and through him, we can now go to God. So now that we understand our position in Christ, we can now look at our new condition in Christ. And let's look at the next part of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, we can see from verse 21 that our old condition was one that was hostile in mind. And we learned that hostility in mind meant that we were insubordinate people who could not submit to God's law. However, now we see that those who, whom Christ has reconciled to himself are holy, blameless, and above reproach. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. What does it mean to be holy? Holiness literally means to be set apart. And what are we a set apart for? We are set apart for honorable use. We see in Titus 3 that we were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures. In other words, we were instruments of wickedness. The Bible says not to offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. The pursuit of holiness does not end when we come to Christ. In fact, it just begins. this can be confusing. How can we be holy? How can we become holy but already be holy? And the answer to this question is that there is a positional holiness that we inherit at regeneration and a practical holiness that we must actively pursue. Remember, our new position in Christ is that of reconciliation. However, the process of holiness is a lifetime effort And the means in which we strive after this effort is through through our new condition. Because of God's mercies, we should be living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Holiness is not a possibility for the Christian. Holiness is a requirement. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Holiness is the will of God for our lives. So how many of us feel holy None of us, okay. Why is that? Because we are still wrestling with the nature that we have been given by our forefather Adam. This is the duality of all Christians. Paul, the very of this letter of this author says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver us from this body of death, church? Jesus Christ. This is not an effort we do on our own strength, but by the grace of God, he gives us a helper to accomplish this holiness. And this is, there's this fascinating part in the book of John where Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is better that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He says that it is better for himself to leave and to send the Spirit than for Him to stay. Why? Because when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide us in all truth. What an amazing blessing this is. We aren't left to figure out our holiness on our own. Rather, we were filled with the Spirit of God, and we walk by the Spirit. And in so doing, we do not gratify the desires of the flesh, because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit who dwells in us. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. So if you are led by the Spirit, you will conquer your flesh because now you have the ability to do so. This is the primary difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. A Christian has the Spirit of God and a non-Christian doesn't. A Christian can now pursue holiness and say no to sin, whereas a non-Christian cannot. A Christian has a changed condition. They are positionally holy before God, and now they can submit to God's law and pursue holiness. Certainly we won't do this perfectly, but the sign of a Christian is that by the work of the Spirit, the Christian will be conformed to the image of Christ. That is what it means to be holy. We, like our Maker, who is the holy of holies. So what do we do when the accuser comes? And tells us of our weakness and our failings and of how unholy we are. What do we say to him? I would like to share my favorite part of the Pilgrim's Progress, where in this story, Satan is seeking to get him, the main character, his name is also Christian, of course, for all of his faults and failings as he's on his way to the city of Zion. And so Satan comes to Christian and he says, Christian, you fainted at first setting out when you were almost choked in the gulf of despond. You attempted wrong ways to rid your burden, whereas you should have stayed till your prince had taken it off. You sinfully slept and lost your choice things. You were also almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you are inwardly desirous of vain glory in all that you say and do. And look at Christian's response. All this is true, and much more which you have left out. But the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. But besides, these infirmities possessed me in your country, for I sucked them in, and I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, and I have obtained pardon from my prince. All this is true, which you left out. Church, This should be our answer. All this is true and much more. The gospel is this. We are far more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. In Christ, we are blameless. In Christ, we are above reproach. Because it is not ourselves that we put our trust in, but rather in Jesus Christ. We now have a new position of reconciliation and a new condition of holy, blameless, and above reproach, and our new position and condition will lead to action. Look here at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If. Man, I hate that word, if. It's a terrifying conjunction. Why? Because it's a stipulative conjunction. I will love you forever if I don't get bored along the way. I will give you this really amazing dream house of yours if you incur massive debt for the next 30 years. That's crippling, right? Oh, bummer. And here we are again. Christ will present you holy and blameless and above reproach if you continue in the faith. So does this rest on you? Are you going to make it on your own? Absolutely not. Just as our efforts couldn't make us good, neither can your efforts keep you in Christ. Are you going to heaven? If so, why? How confident are you that you're going to heaven? Did you start this work of salvation? No. God started the work of salvation. God saved you. God makes you holy, and it will be God who gets you to heaven, not you. God started the work in you, and he will carry this work to completion until he presents you holy, blameless, and above reproach. What does it mean to be God? It means you get whatever you want. God is not sitting at the door of your heart, begging you to let him in. He is not groveling at your feet, begging you to follow him. If he wants you, he gets you. He will kick the door down and take you for himself. If you are his, you will always be his. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And how do you know that you are saved? Because you believe today. And you will believe tomorrow and the next day. And that belief will continue until you stand before Jesus Christ himself and your faith becomes sight. And for those of us who know the people that have left the faith... They were never of us. The devil has revealed their true nature. And if they were, they were never Christ in the first place because if they were, they would have continued to the end. And we pray that God will save them too. Just as he saved you and me. We did nothing to warrant this amazing gift of salvation. We were not good. We were not better than others. We did not obey God's law. No, we did nothing. We are not saved because of us. We hated God. And in spite of this, Christ saved us and he will one day present you in all holiness and splendor and majesty to his heavenly father. Why? That he might be preeminent in salvation. Salvation isn't about us. It's about God and about Christ reconciling all things to himself of which you are a part. Christ is our hope. Christ is what we are anchored to so that when the waves of hell slam into your face, You are not shaken, but firm and stable. Christ and his gospel are the rock that we build our lives upon so that when everything else is stripped away, whether it's our jobs, our friends, or even our families, we are steadfast, not shifting from the hope that we have. Why? Because we know that Christ is with us and for us and he will keep us to the end and forevermore. He keeps us in his hands and no one can pluck us from them. So if we ask the third question, who am I in Christ? Your position is one of reconciled back to God. You are no longer condemned as a sinner. You are no longer counted amongst the wicked. You are not a worm. You are a child of God and no longer a child of the devil. You can now overcome evil with good because the Spirit of God dwells in you and has given you a new condition, holy, blameless, and above reproach. You are a saint, and your ransom has been paid, and you will be conformed to the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next, and you will endure to the end. And when you close your eyes in death, you will awaken to the sight of your Savior who took death's sting upon himself. And for all eternity, you will fall more and more in love with your glorious God, magnifying his preeminence and enjoying him forever. That is who you are, Christian. Hold your head high. Because you belong to the King of Kings, and he will present you in splendor that surpasses all understanding to our Father in heaven. And this can be you too, non Christian. I pray that God will save you. Ask God to save you. The time is now. Repent of your evil deeds and believe in the gospel that you just heard, and you will be saved. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So let's wrap this up. Let's ask the final question. What is the significance of who I am? So let's finish this by looking at the second half of verse 23. The gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. This isn't talking about general revelation of God that we see in Romans 1, that everyone has. We are talking about the saving gospel that you heard of which Paul and we are ministers. So we just define the gospel. So how has it been proclaimed in all creation under heaven? Look with me at Colossians 1, 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile unto himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Up to this point, we have seen how Christ, in his preeminence, reconciled you and me, and how he is reconciling all his people to himself. He has made peace by the blood of his cross, and is bringing all his elect back to himself. But the text says that Christ wants to reconcile all things back to himself. Remember, That as a result of sin, creation was also subjected to sin. So, one more time with me, turn to Romans 8. Starting in 19 For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it and hopes that verse 21 that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now we can see here in verse 23 God is proclaiming the gospel to all creation God is coming for creation itself we are talking about God reconciling all creation to himself, not just his people, but all creation. And how is he going to do it? Through his body, the church of which he is a head. The Bible says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What is the means in which Christ's kingdom is going to spread into creation through which Christ will reconcile it to himself? It's through us, the church. We are the primary means in which God reconciles creation to himself. God is giving the gospel to creation. The gospel isn't just for us. It's for all creation. And Christ gets it all. Christ is preeminent. And for our call as Christians is to go forth into the world proclaiming the good news of the gospel and making disciples of all nations. So that the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow and all tongues confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of our Father in heaven. This is the mission of the church. We are to go into the darkness and shine forth the light of Christ and bring it into submission to the, and rule of our Savior. We see from John 1 that darkness cannot overcome light. We proclaim the gospel and we make disciples and we are bringing forth the kingdom of God. And as Aaron said, we are bringing heaven down. We are replacing the dominion of evil with the dominion of Christ. We are more than conquerors through Christ whose Spirit works in us as tools of righteousness wielded by the Lord to destroy darkness and usher in Christ's kingdom. So don't just go home today encouraged. Go home today realizing that because Christ dwells in you, you are the means of Christ crushing the head of Satan in this age and you are the means in which the kingdom of Christ will advance it's a noble calling. And one day Christ will come and set us free again from all sin and death. And I pray that we will be ready. I love you, church. Heed the call. Let's pray. I thank you for your word. Thank you for such a powerful passage. And we thank you, Lord, that the gospel is real, that we were not abandoned in our sin, but that you made a way, that you bridged the chasm that we could not. And you loved us wicked sinners, and you gave us a new condition of holy blameless and above reproach. Praise in your name, Jesus. Amen.